Flying Bull Productions presents Laugh, Literature, and Film. Welcome to the good stuff. Yeah. Episode 198 of the Laugh Podcast. We're your host over there is Ryan K. Bull. Howdy. And I'm your host, uh, other host, Richard Lusk. This week, we're going to be looking at the one of your most anticipated movies of the winter season, the Oscar potential movie, Loving, by director, writer Jeff Nichols. I'm going to build you a house right here, our house. I want to take Mildred up to D.C. and get married. Are you sure about that? By the power vested in me by the District of Columbia, I now pronounce you husband and wife. In here? What you doing in bed with that woman? I'm his wife. That's no good here. Richard Perry Loving being a white person and Mildred Jeter being a colored person did unlawfully cohabitate as man and wife. Richard? This is from the focusfeatures.com website. Pretty good description of it. Loving celebrates the real-life courage and commitment of an interracial couple, Richard and Mildred Loving, played by Joel Egerton and Ruth Nega, who married and then spent the next nine years fighting for the right to live as a family in their hometown, which is right up the road from where we are. Mm -hmm. Their civil rights case, Loving v. Virginia, went all the way to the Supreme Court, which in 1967 reaffirmed the very foundation of the right to marry. Ooh, spoiler alert. And their love story has become an inspiration to couples ever since. Now, I mentioned earlier that this was your one of your more anticipated movies, and I'm wondering if you felt that it paid off. Like, did you enjoy it as much as you thought you would? I enjoyed the film. Um, I don't think it's one of Jeff Nichols' best films, Jeff Nichols being the director of the film, and we've talked about him a lot on the show. We're both big fans of Mud, Take Shelter, and Shotgun Stories. Earlier this year, we reviewed a Midnight Special, mm-hmm. and we were... We enjoyed the movie. We weren't over the moon about Midnight Special. I think this is a solid tale. And one of the things I love about Jeff Nichols is that he makes these quiet films depicting Southern life in America. And he always finds characters at their moment of greatest conflict. And while these aren't loud cinematic moments like you so often see in films, you know, where there's a sweeping score, crazy camera work, maybe loud explosions he's still able to convey how important these moments are to his characters and why they're so heavily invested. And that's one of the things I love about these movies. And this film in and of itself is about a very simple Southern couple, the Mm -hmm. loving family. Neither of these people were terribly well educated. So I actually enjoyed that. They don't give these sweeping monologues, these grandiose speeches Mm -hmm. In the film, like you would see happen in so many other filmmakers' hands. I kind of like how Joel Edgerton is forced to say more with uh, a stare or a look or even just 
you know, a, a soft moment putting his hand on his wife's shoulder. Because I really feel like that's what the actual couple was from some of the footage I saw online about them and some of the pictures that were taken by Life magazine. Mm-hmm. So I enjoyed how quiet this film was. A lot of people are saying that's a weakness of the film, that there just isn't a whole lot to chew on. Well, it gives the the film a sense of verisimilitude and almost like a documentary mm-hmm. uh, type of movie played out dramatically. Um, I'm incredibly ambivalent myself. Like, I appreciated more the movie. I appreciated it a lot more maybe a day or two after I had watched it. The experience of watching it was not enjoyable for me. I guess for a variety of reasons, but um, I guess the thing that I like best about it is its attention to small details and the fact that it's a period piece. Um, And I guess I can recommend it because of the fact that it makes me reconsider it mm-hmm. and thinking about it later um, kind of I, I, it raised it up in my estimation. So I can't write it off as being slight or unworthy of consideration. I just, I'm not, I'm not convinced that it's anything more than, than good. Okay. So it's, it's a solid movie. It's, it's just, it's unexcellent. I guess it's the best way to put it. Well, like Joel Edgerton. Very quiet character, has maybe 14 lines of dialogue in the whole film. Right. And it would be easy to overlook that performance, given that I think a lot of people aren't that familiar with Joel Edgerton. Uh, I think I first noticed him in The Great Gatsby, where he plays Tom Buchanan Mm -hmm. and goes toe-to-toe with Leonardo DiCaprio and gives this great, boisterous, grandiose performance. Um, I also liked him a lot in The Gift last year, or last summer. We reviewed that film, where he plays the creepy friend from the past and yep. felt completely different in that role. And now we have him in this film where he's playing a very simple Southern man and he's Australian. Right. Um, I think he's, he was, he does some stuff with David Gordon green and, yeah. and uh, he has a fairly strong Australian accent. Right. Normally you didn't have to worry much about accents with this movie. If it's, if you're only saying one or two words at the time, but, but I would argue his accent. I mean, he sounded like he was from rural Virginia, much more so than the other movie that we saw recently. Uh, the war movie, Hacksaw Ridge. Hacksaw Ridge. I thought their accents were all over the place and yeah, they were none of those places were Virginia. In fact, this is a, that's a pretty good movie to compare this to is Hacksaw Ridge because that movie was very interested in manipulating its audience, but in a very different way. Mm-hmm. Like this movie, there's a quiet dignity to the characters that make them seem more heroic under consideration later than and as uh, like an individual in Hacksaw Ridge who's branded as a hero and then they're sort of presented that way. So the understated approach of Jeff Nichols was, um, I, 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 appreciated more like i said after having watched it and having thought about it but then i thought the the way that it depicted the time period was really authentic as opposed to what happened with hacksaw ridge i don't know did we talk about hacksaw ridge on this program i believe we did i thought we talked about some um so this movie is a lot like the character of uh richard loving because this movie is not really trying to be something that's not but what it actually is might not be all that interesting. Like Richard mm-hmm. Loving is not really that interesting or compelling of a, of a, of a person. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important legally and in terms of society and the story is important, but 
really, this is just a movie about the day-to-day life of, well, this, a segment of the day-to-day life of these two fairly boring people. Maybe that's why I was bored. But, I mean, it's also interesting. They were kind of caught up in this, um, not scheme, but they were caught up in all of the law stuff. I mean, the ACLU comes in and represents them. Mm-hmm. And they could have picked from any number of couples. Quite a few people were facing this, even in um, the Loving Family's own hometown. There were other interracial couples. Mm-hmm. But they just get caught up in this, and they don't understand how the law works. And, you know, They're really just pawns in this whole thing. Well, Part of grander plans. Like It's kind of hinted at in the movie that their defense team does not want to win the case early on. They want to lose so that they can keep appealing this court case well, all the way to the Supreme Court. They're sort of egging them on to to run up in the face of the of the the law and get arrested, like some sort of peaceful protest, uh, like we saw in Selma a couple of years. Or, you know, the movie mm-hmm. Selma, anyway. But the idea that you can have nonviolent resistance and then have violence perpetrated against you, which is not something that Richard Loving is very interested in having happen. In fact, he's just a simple guy that just wants to do his job and protect his family and do the best thing by him. At one point he says, can't you just talk to the judge? Right. He, just he, wants, he to wants to, to settle it like a man. Yeah. And he wants this to be handled on the simplest level. He doesn't see himself as some great hero, as, you know, a founding father for this revolutionary moment. In fact, uh, his wife was asked right before her death when she was interviewed, if she felt she was part of the civil rights movement. And she said, no, we were just trying to live together. They were part of the loving movement. Yeah. Which I, I think that's interesting. And I mean, it's an interesting way to look at the law. When I was watching this movie, I thought a lot of the movie woman in gold with hair and Millie, <laughs> Helen Miriam, when she's trying to sue to get back a family portrait that was done and that was captured by the Nazis. And again, that's, you know, a person getting caught up in this law case, but that movie has many more grandiose statements and speeches. Yeah. In this movie, they choose to have someone read the statements of the, like the incendiary overly racist comments of, uh, of the, the original judge that ruled against them. Mm-hmm. Something along the lines of, it's so simplistic, simplistic and reductive, it, it, it's, it's almost laughable when he says that if, if God wanted uh, whites and blacks to live together, he would have put them on the same continent. <laughs> you, yeah. know? Not, you know, ignoring the fact that they were. That Europe, the, Asia, and Africa the, all are connected. <laughs> no, that, uh, it's like the well, argument yeah. that uh, the, uh, for intelligent design based on the shape of a banana. Yeah. Because <laughs> it fits in the hand, this must prove. Uh, and it's it's so insane that that's the way people thought, Like, and, and that's the, the logic that they applied to the law. Well, that I think is interesting. This is a, a learned judge, and, right. and, and the Loving's lawyers are happy that this is his ruling because now they get to go and tear apart this logic. Yeah, but only at the Supreme Court level. They they knew they wouldn't be able to do well, it. Well, they took it the to South. the state Supreme Court. Yeah, but then does this judge not see where this is going? Like, did he just think oh, no. it was going to end there? That oh, he no, had given no. his decree? Oh, and- dude, in the sixties, yeah, they didn't. They didn't really. They thought every. See, this is a problem with humanity. Everybody thinks that everybody thinks like they think. And they don't see they don't see the differing worldviews. I would just think, as a practitioner of the law, 
you would understand that your ruling can be appealed, so you should be careful with the way you word stuff so that you don't get overruled. Well, well, he's just sort of applying a letter. He's applying the letter of the law. And the way the law was written, which is a reflective of what society wanted at the time, it's, I mean, of course, they were, they were in violation of the law. They were in violation of the law. All this, all the commentary aside, what, how he reaches, you know, his judgment on him, that's just perfect for the defense to come up with something, you know, be like, look at these stupid Southerners. But the law was still in place. I mean, uh, I think they had to overturn seven, 17 states had laws ruling against uh, miscegenation. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, this was not, it wasn't, I, I, I was thinking during the movie, and this might be a testament to Edgerton's portrayal of Richard Loving. I was kind of thinking that Loving agrees with the judge and the sheriff on more things than not. With this one instance aside, it, like I think for that character or that person, he he wants to do what's right by the law. He also wants to do what's right by mm-hmm. you know him his family. So he, I think he's perfectly willing to stay in Washington. I mean. He didn't seem to be as dissatisfied with it as his wife, mm-hmm. but he understands the implications of it, and I think he has—he's of the same mindset. Obviously, he's not insanely racist, but if someone came to him with that argument that said God put us on, put people on different continents so that they wouldn't intermarry, I think that Richard Loving might think, "Well, that makes sense." I mean, that's just the mentality of the time and the and the place. I mean. Uh... I don't know if I agree with all, all that. I think he was very pragmatic. Like when they say, are you, are you coming to the case? And he says, no, I'm not going to understand anything that's being said. Right. That to me, just he wants to live his life. He's going to live it very quietly. He's not going to cause any problems. I mean, it seems like he purposely tries to find a place to live that's as far away from the rest of civilization as possible. Mm-hmm. He has no problems driving an hour plus to work every day. Well, I, I don't know if that's it the just case. Like stay, I mean, he just, well, he always starts driving. It seems like early afternoon, and whenever he gets somewhere, it's evening. Oh, I just, I didn't really see that. I just kind of judge that as a function of his job, yeah. which takes him to different locations. That's fine. But, yeah, I, I think they were caught up. Um, the only reason Virginia's being picked on is because it was right next to D.C., so the lawyers didn't have to travel far. <laughs> like, were they that. trying to hint at that? Like, the ACLU guy says... uh I've got a second office I can use, and it's he's just borrowing it from a friend, and it right. seems like they're working on a shoestring budget. Seems like out of the state. Well, the ACLU had just gotten started, uh, and this wasn't one of their high priority tasks at the time. No, but the the second lawyer, the first lawyer is played by Nick Kroll. I know you kind of like him too, Bernie Cohen. Mm-hmm. Um, he he honestly has some of the dumbest statements and sequences and lines. Like I, I don't. I'm not really satisfied with the writing of the movie, but there's one point where he says something like, um, is there anything you want me to say to them? And by them, I mean the Supreme Court justices of the United <laughs> States. I was just like, come on, that's so ham-handed. But the secondary uh, um, lawyer that comes in, John Bass, is the actor, and he's playing the role uh, Phil Hirschkop. There's this subtle smile that crosses his face that – when he realizes this is a Supreme Court case. And that almost made the the movie for me because now I realize that this motivation for that character is really different 
than the loving's motivations, which, uh, and I mean, they're not, it's the approach I think is what sold the movie for me because in any other director's hands or any other type of movie of this nature, it might've just gone too big and too wide. And I like the subtlety in it, and that's why I'm, I guess that's why I'm so ambivalent. I mean, like it. the lawyers have their own film crew at key moments, right? They come running across the street. You have our number. Yeah, it's just anything happens, give us a call. I, I think all that happened the way that it, that mm-hmm. it did. Now, um, Michael Shannon's been in all five of Jeff Nichols' movie. He plays a bit part here as the photographer, life photographer, Gray Vallette. There's some ambiguity and subtlety with that character, too. And I'm wondering if you think that that character exploited the Lovings. Because there's a little bit there's a little bit of tension between them and the press. And you can tell in the few scenes Loving doesn't want to have anything to do with the press. But when Grey Vallette comes in, he sort of charms him. And there's two ways to read the, those interactions and those couple of scenes. Is he really that charming? Or is he manipulating them in the same way these lawyers may have manipulated them. There's a little dance going on. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I kind of appreciated it. Yeah, no, I enjoy the subtlety Michael Shannon brings to the role. I've always enjoyed watching Michael Shannon. And at first when he showed up, I'm like, well, you just have to cast him. But did you see the pictures of the actual photographer? They looked a lot like him. Oh, yeah. I mean, all the casting is spot on. Mm-hmm. I, I was pleasantly surprised by that. Um yeah, I think everyone in this film has their own motivations. And I do think the movie goes out and, you know, tries to say that. Um, even Ruth uh, Nega's family, mm-hmm. you know, they have their own motivations for why things should or should not happen. Uh, when Joel Edgerton goes out drinking with her brothers and mm-hmm. gets told off in the bar. Right. Even though, I mean, he's just sitting there drinking his beer, trying to be quiet and just enjoy the evening. Right, right. And somehow he gets in trouble again, and he kind of has a look like, I can't win. I can't win. Right. Uh, yeah, the, there, are some, there are some really uplifting scenes in terms of the way they convey the message. Yeah, I, I like that Jeff Nichols went for subtlety. And I think a lot of people who are giving this movie bad reviews because it's so subtle are, are missing out on that. Well, it's not, com- it's not highly compelling drama. It's not anything that – it's not – I mean, it's no Gal- Gal- Guardians of the Galaxy, <laughs> and it's not Hacksaw Ridge, and it's not anything that's going to like get y'all riled up. Even the uh, movie, what did we see recently? Sully. Mm-hmm. Like Sully had those rise up out of your seat moments. I don't think this movie's going for that, and and as such, it's striking different chords, and it's not resonating, you know, that high. But it's still, I mean. It's still like 89% or 86%. Oh, yeah. it's, there's only a few. But it's a simple story. And I think that's part of what appeals to Jeff Nichols is telling these simple stories that are set in the South. Where, you know, Sully happens in New York City. It's got to be a big deal because it's New York City. Right. Right? What? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but th- that's, I guess, that's one of the appeals. And maybe it's the Southerner in me that causes me to, you know appreciate these type of the films. The Southerner in you. The Southerner. Well, how are you a Southerner? Live in Virginia all my life. <laughs> Northern Virginia is not South. That's, that's, they I lived it, in Northern that's Virginia half it, my life. That's why they call it Northern Virginia. Yeah, yes. Yeah. That's the North. At some point you cross over the Piddly Widley line. <laughs> yeah. It's not the Mason Ditson anymore. It's the Piddly Widley line. <laughs> I was looking for commonalities in Jeff Nichols' films and one of the things I thought 
compelling about all of them, one of the things they have in common is that um, that loving, the concept of loving somebody, this is in all of his films, means finding a way to deal with the ramifications of other people's decisions. And I saw this sort of common thread moving through most of his movies that people that you're in love with are going to do things that you don't necessarily agree with. And then you have to make a choice. Like, how are you going to behave in light of the fact that you have a responsibility to not only the person that you're involved with, but also to the relationship. And then you have to give up something of yourself for, in this case, it's um, loving. uh, I don't think he wants to be in the spotlight in any way, shape or form. He just wants to go to work, bring home the bacon, have his wife cook it and eat it for breakfast on his way to work. Yeah. Or before he goes to work. So, and, I applaud Joel Edgerton for taking the role. I don't think he gets nominated for any awards. I think it's a very solid performance yeah. by him. It's not flashy enough. I think Ruth Nega gets nominated for uh, lead actress. Yeah, probably. It'll be hard. It's not a showcase piece, though. So it'll be difficult for her to win. I know that she's getting some, maybe in the Independent Spirit Awards. I think she mm-hmm. won those. Uh, best actress or she was at least nominated but i would say she gets nominated and i think the film gets nominated for best picture for the <sighs> academy award it's not a best picture though i mean it's a decent picture for me uh it's just not a it's not a best picture i generally you find some biopic that gets nominated every year well whether it's like philomena sully this year well this CK nominated this movie fits in that wheelhouse of brooklyn Okay. From last year, but Brooklyn was a much more enjoyable film. I just had a more a more enjoyable time watching it. One of the things that this movie has going for it, but which I think is sort of a detriment to it, is the the moniker that critics and others will place on movies, where they'll say this is the most important movie of our time. If you hear those words attached to a movie, generally it's like run, get out of here, don't watch that movie. It's going to be boring. Uh, and it's difficult sometimes for movies like that to be entertaining as a necessity times to me, it feel, it felt like the movie was covered by the weight of its own importance. Uh, like it was convinced of its purpose, even though it wasn't flashy about it, it Mm -hmm. still had this sort of oppressive sense of, uh, it insisted upon itself in a, in a few ways. One of the ways, which you mentioned at the beginning was, uh, and I don't know what it was in reference to, but I wrote down in my notes something about score. And I realized that one of the things that bothered me about this movie was its score. Really? Yeah. I went and looked it up. Uh, David Wingo was the uh, composer, and he works a lot with David Gordon Green as well. Um, I think the mu- the music was manipulative. <laughs> I, was. I would argue that happens in many films. Yeah, but it was this is oppressively so. And it might have been just... How I was watching it, or where I was watching it, it might have been that like maybe I was closer to that track or something. I don't, I don't know. The soundtrack was punctuating a lot of the important scenes, whereas I kind of appreciate movies that don't rely on that that sort of device as much. I'm hardly ever aware of soundtrack, but I was in this movie, and I was taken out of the movie a couple of times as a result of it. Really? Because I felt mm-hmm. a lot of scenes had an absence of music. That there was just that oppressive silence. I don't know. Maybe it was it was there, and you didn't notice it, and I did, or maybe I'm noticing it too much or putting too much weight on it. But I, I, it was one of the things that bothered me. And I, I mean, I, I'm perfectly willing to admit that I might be wrong. 
but no, I, I might need to go back and uh, rewatch it. Uh, speaking of music scores that just yeah, all of a sudden seem oppressive. I've been showing my students Minority Report. Yeah, and I'm just like, holy crud! There are so many callbacks to other Steven Spielberg films and just little moments uh, when Tom Cruise gets away out of the factory. There's a little Indiana Jones flair at the end. Do the kids know that? I mean, are they aware no? Of that? And I so don't think I John can point Williams? out. Did he do Minority Report? I don't know who did the music score for that, but huh. it was just really bothering me, uh, the music during that whole chase sequence of Tom Cruise. Right. And then just, you know, some of the callbacks to kind of slapstick violence and stuff. And there were like elements of hook in there with some of the choreography for the fights. And okay. It was, I'm not it was, that familiar with Hook. I, I, I know, but I, I've seen a couple of these Spielberg films this fall again, rewatch them, and then I'm watching Minority Report. I'm like, wow, this is really manipulative. And I've seen Minority Report half a dozen times, but just this time, all of a sudden, it's stuck out like a sore thumb. When you're being manipulated in the sense that the, the filmmaker is trying to make you enjoy something, that's different than when you're being manipulated to think something's important or yeah. something's like you know that this has so much weight and you must pay attention here i must punctuate this concept as okay. opposed to eh, here's a frolicking good time so here's a little is this court case important most important because it allowed the gen or to it allowed the races to intermarry or because this was one of the landmark decisions the supreme court cited when they ruled on same-sex marriage do you mean does it have more importance yeah. now than it did in 1967 yeah like th- this, no. this is apparently the landmark case that allowed same-sex marriage. Well, I think same-sex marriage happened as a result of just common sense, you know, being able to apply common sense. But the Supreme dictates. Court, I mean, they cited this did, one directly. Did, did they? Now, I don't know about the, the gay marriage initiative or whatever mm-hmm. happened at the Supreme Court. But was it a unanimous decision? I don't remember what the ruling because was. I, I don't think was, it was. I mean, this was so obviously unanimous, like this, the application of this mm-hmm. and the way that they overturned the law and say this is unconstitutional was comprehensive. I mean, it was just like a comprehensive rebuke of, of a systematic form of racism that was institutionalized as opposed to um, personalized. That's one of the things I appreciated about this movie was there weren't a whole lot of melodramatic racial racial tense points like like it would be in like a spielberg movie or uh, a movie like hacksaw ridge or or, Mm -hmm. um, you know any other director would have taken the opportunity to have loving get in a fight or um have somebody give up make a great big speech about how horrible these things are i mean like a physical fight um the movie a couple years ago that won the best picture uh crash no, no, no. <laughs> Crash is a good ch- choice, though, because it does deal with racial issues, but it does it in a very, like, f- flashy, in-your-face sort of... If everyone shouts, it means they're full of emotion! <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this movie doesn't have that, but the form of racism that they do have to fight is so much more insidious, because it's just... It's, a, it's an ideology, as opposed to an activity. And that, you know, you don't... You only saw, like a few subtle glances by society, you know, sideways glances at them from both black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you encounter the, the judge and the, and the sheriff who just haphazardly, I mean, they, 
they went to their house in the middle of the night because they wanted to catch them in flagrante delecto so that they could bring them up on another law. Just and they can it. just break in. Yeah, they just, well, yeah, here we go. Boom. Well, we thought that you might have been sleeping with this wall. You know, not sleeping, sleeping with this <laughs> So, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess maybe the subtlety won me over on that as well. That there wasn't a... Uh, I was thinking about how it would have happened in the hands of some other director, and they and they would have had him uh, fighting with the white guys, and then oh, it was black and white. And yeah. So, if anything else, this movie is a testament to the power of being a good tradesman, and you can always provide for your family if you know a skill. Because he kept going back to that, his ability to to, to lay, lay some brick. Yeah. How many different scenes were there of him laying brick? Well, he only apparently ever gets two courses up. And then you look, and there's barely any brick on the yeah, job God forbid site. forbid you go to the ladder anywhere. Uh, well, maybe there's a quarter of a pallet of brick. <laughs> it's like, you're not going to get too far. Well, yeah, production value, you know. Yeah, yeah, uh, But this guy kept falling on his feet, even though he had to, like, if, if someone said you have to up and leave, if you don't have, like, a trade to fall back on, you, you got issues, man. If you're like a factory worker and you're making widgets mm-hmm. and you have to go to some other place, you got to take your family and get out of here. What are you going to do? Masonry is a solid living. Yeah. That's what this movie is a testament to masonry. <laughs> that's what I got out of it anyway. Yeah. I also like the fact he's always able to provide for his family and spoil some stuff, man. The man that hath no music in himself, nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. Well, no, uh, because like I said, there was that one scene, and the reason I saved it for spoilers is because it's a, it's visually powerful, where there's a brick, uh, is after uh, Gray Vallette has taken the uh, photograph of them, and mm-hmm. this pretty famous photograph of them as a couple together lying on a couch somewhere, and that's when I was asking you if you thought maybe he manipulated them by taking a, a surreptitious photograph of them from the hip. So... In the movie, anyway, he does that, and then it, it winds up in Time Magazine, and I'm, I'm almost convinced that the first time he sees Loving sees that photograph is when someone has wrapped it around a brick, and put it on his on the seat of his car. Maybe I know they had a lot of home movies taken of them. I mean, there were a lot of photographs because there are numerous documentaries about their life, and there's a ton of footage of them. That's the only reason why I don't think they were tricked into stuff as much as i think you want to believe with the time photograph i could easily be wrong oh maybe i I don't know if i want to believe that or not i just that's what the movie seemed to be suggesting to me like i didn't i didn't study a whole lot about their life but i appreciate that everyone's not out to do this for the most noble of purposes everyone's out to you know make their buck to make their lot in life everyone has something to gain from this yeah but there's something about that brick in the seat of his car that's not been thrown through the window of the car. Mm-hmm. Like there's no broken glass and the statement that's being made there can be taken several different ways. could be like, Hey, I saw you. I know who you are. I don't know what you're trying to hide or this brick might be going for your head the next time, you know, it comes around. I mean, there are some things that loving does in terms of, I guess there's a point of high tension when someone comes driving up on the car really fast and he's like, why are you driving so fast? And he gets all scared. I mean, we're supposed to feel tense there. And I suppose that he did spend most mm-hmm. of his life feeling tense. But I think... Well, and he never knows who he can 
trust. Like, I mean, he's always looking that's and trying to thing. figure out who is angry with me. Well, that's the other thing I wanted to say for spoilers. In that scene, he looks around. He's like, who could have done this? We don't know. They allow as to how someone turned him in. And that's how they, they got caught the first time. Somebody, they could have gone for a long time without anybody even knowing anything. Mm-hmm. But someone turned him in. And then I'm wondering who you think the culprit is on that. And I think the movie has something they want to say about it. But I'm not sure if, if I'm reading it right. I don't know. I mean, I know later on there's that little scene with the small African-American yeah. boy who's... But that comes so final. far. I mean, it comes out of the blue. Well, then nothing really comes. But I, is the movie trying to hint you never know who's watching and who's saying something? But Because the, I do think the movie you know, shows neither side was real happy with this marriage. Or there were people on both sides who were angry. I should say that. There were other people who were ambivalent towards it. What do you mean it. on both sides? Both white and black. Oh, you mean Loving's family and versus yeah. his wife's family? I, I, I think there were white people who were upset with this interracial marriage, but there were also black people who were upset at the same time. Right. They show the, the kids at the drag race looking sideways at him, and then they show him at the mm-hmm. I don't, drag goods I, shop. I think they're trying to be even-handed. Yeah, I, I, yeah, of course. I, I, I can appreciate that, too. But that still doesn't allow us to who's turning them in. I don't think they ever knew who turned them in. Who do you think it was? I, I have no idea, but I'm... I see you have a theory. I don't know. No, I don't know. And that's why there, it stumbles there. When they have that little kid running around, they focus on it for, I don't know, a good five minutes of the movie. Maybe but nothing not ever much. comes of that one. I know. It just seemed like a red herring and it seemed misplaced. Okay. And, you know, I don't know. Did you realize that she didn't consider herself to be black? Ruth Nega's uh, character of Mildred yeah. Loving? Yeah. Yeah. But at the time, the law was one drop. But there's this weird cultural appropriation going on in the 60s where they where blacks denied their race. There was yeah, there was a lot of odd stuff going like on. Like Malcolm so. X's mother supposedly looked white or she passed off, she passed as white. She had she was like half Scottish. You know some people think that Obama is Obama's father was Barack Obama's father was Malcolm X. What? That's what, yeah, there's a conspiracy theory out there that that Barack Obama's mother was in New York when he was conceived and Malcolm X was there, too. As were eight million other people. <laughs> All right. So um, I couldn't find a really great quote from any Jeff Nichols movie. Yeah, his movies are awfully quiet. But I do remember say, uh, say, reading something that Michael Shannon once said, which was that people are morons. <laughs> I don't do any social media stuff. I have people telling me all the time, you should do Twitter. You should do this. You should get on Facebook. Are you insane? I'm not doing any of that crap. I still the hell off that thing. Every once in a while, I send a business email and that's it. So that's Michael Shannon, (laughs) star of loving. I like it. With that in mind, please follow us on Twitter. At the Laugh Podcast, and like us on Facebook. And if you have time or the energy, you can go to podcastland.com and vote for us for Podcast of the Month. I think there's a link to that on our homepage. Sure, there will be. www.thelaughpodcast.com. And you can go there and send us either a personal or a business email. Uh, And we have some feedback from some of our listeners. So let's see. uh, S. Lasky tells us that we need to spend more time talking about movies and less time arguing about the rivalry between DC and Marvel. 
Okay. So thank you, Mr. Lasky. D. Scanlon wants to know when we're going to talk about Arrival. Uh, when it gets nominated for Best Picture. When it wins Best Picture, boom, goes the dynamite. No, I don't know. La La Land's my pick. Uh, he says he might want to get in on that. So I don't know. Super fan Tony C. Send us a link for an awful Christmas sweater. Did you see that picture? Yeah, I feel really bad about that sweater, too. Why? Because all the stuff that's going on with Val Kilmer right now. He's supposedly oh, like dying of throat that. cancer. Really? Or tongue cancer or something. Yeah. Like, I, I didn't know anything about that. Oh, wait a minute. I think I did. Someone said that he was, but then he denied it. He denied it, but he was giving a talk, and he, he's got this thick tongue in his mouth, and he can't talk at all. Well, he's got thick everything. That no, no. It, it's really bad. I mean, it sounds like... Has he lost a lot of weight? Not really. Hmm. Well, I mean, he did. He lost a lot of weight a couple of years ago, and he he never got back up to Marlon Brando size. Hmm. But hmm. I mean, I hope the guy's okay. So the fact that it's it, the sweater is coming from the movie Tombstone, where he plays Doc Holliday, who was a guy who was dying of tuberculosis. Right. Wow. You know, it's just like, hmm, this is a little bit too way, much like real life. Way to weigh down the uh, podcast there. Boom goes the dynamite, Mister Tony C. Uh, finally, we have a new review on iTunes. Brandon 2.0 gives us a one star and writes, Awful. The lusk is cool, cool, but the bull is balls. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. And we thank you, though, for listening. If you don't agree with Brandon 2.0 and want to support our show, please head on over to iTunes and give us a review. Search for the Laugh Podcast. That's the LAF Podcast. So for Bull is Balls over there. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> I'm Lusk. Pox that boat of everybody. There be dragons. Are you going to the movies this weekend? Let Laugh know what you saw. Send in your review by emailing the show at thelaughpodcast at gmail.com, tweeting at the Laugh Podcast, or messaging us on facebook.com backslash the Laugh Podcast. The best comments will get read on a future show. Yes. Just let me know when you're ready. It's recording. Sippy sip. <laughs> You're a professional. <coughs> wait, wait, it's it's amazing why we don't sh- stream the show live on YouTube with these production qualities. <laughs> 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 <laughs>